Bonjour and welcome to the podcast version of Source Story, a video series for history teachers. Each episode of this series features a conversation around a primary or secondary source that teachers can use in their classrooms. Given that the original version of this conversation was held in English, so too is this podcast episode. Watch the video, available on YouTube, to see the details of each source, and visit our website, sourcestory.ca, for resource links and lesson activities. Hi everyone, Dr. Samantha Cotrera here, the Principal Storytelling Officer for the Histoire Source Source Story video series, a video series for Canadian history teachers where we talk with historians and artists and community members and archivists about a wide variety of both primary and secondary sources. We ask, what is the source, what is the story, and how can teaching with it challenge Canadian history? Because that's really our goal. We don't want these histories to just be brought in and kind of do the same thing that you can get in a textbook, but just maybe like a little different. We really want to bring in these stories as counter stories to tell new histories, broader histories, more complex histories, more connected histories about the Canadian past. Uh, just before we begin, just a reminder that all of the, uh, the talks, all of the videos are available with both French and English subtitles, so click the link below. And we are available on all these social media so that you can follow along with us, share, add things, etc. It's been so wonderful to see how the conversation has been developing. So with that being said too, like feel free to comment like on this video about our talk today and how you're thinking of bringing this into the classroom. Um, also make sure you like and share and subscribe and all of that stuff so that other people get to see these videos as well. I'm really excited for today's talk because it's a little bit different than the other ones that we've done because a lot of the, the sources that we've talked about are like single like images or um, an object like a hockey stick or an egg. And this one is actually a memoir. We're talking with Leonard Paris, who is the author of Jim Crow Lived Here. It is a memoir about growing up black in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia in the 1950s and 60s. And you know, this notion of Jim Crow and Jim Crow laws are really connected with the southern United States but the fact is just like this title says uh, Jim Crow lived here as well structural racism uh, and intergenerational poverty which is like the subtitle to this book um, is very prevalent in Canada as well related to black Canadians related to a lot of different marginalized groups of course but black Canadians in particular and so Mr. Paris tells the story of his own life in the 1950s and 60s in Nova Scotia but really like brings in this longer history of the black experience or black experiences in Canada, both from the past and to the present. And so being able to talk to him about this book is just so, so exciting, especially for Black History Month, but beyond that as well. This is a really great book. It's really easily accessible in terms of the language for you to assign in a classroom to talk about the 1950s and 60s in Canada in order to really complicate this narrative that we often have about just like suburbs growing and post-war boom. What does this look like? What does this period look like for a black man in Nova Scotia during this time? So I can't wait to talk with Mr. Paris about his memoir, about his autobiography, and about um, black history kind of in general related to his own story. So let's go over to Zoom and let's talk to Mr. Paris. 
Hello, Mr. Paris. I'm so excited for today's conversation. I've had your book on my shelf for like a year, and I'm I'm just really excited that we're starting this year's videos, being able to talk with you and about your autobiography. Um, before we get started with talking about the book itself, could you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Well, first off, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, with Black History Month, it's, it's a, always an opportunity to talk about Canadian Black history, uh, not just during Black History Month, but talk about it uh, as often as we can, because in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a long forgotten or erased part of our Canadian history. Um, well, first off, my name is, uh, well, Leonard, but uh, Paris, but I, I go by Len, so feel free to call me Len. <laughs> and uh, I was born in Nova Scotia in 1948, sounds like such a long, long time ago, only three years after the Second World War. Uh, my dad, my dad fought in the Second World War, which I talked about in my book. Uh, so I, I was uh, born in a place called Truro, Nova Scotia, uh, where my mom's family resided. And my dad was from New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, which is about 100 kilometers away. And uh, I only lived in uh, Truro, Nova Scotia for about six years. And I think I did my uh, kindergarten, I think you called it at that time. Uh, school in in Truro, and then my dad, uh, who often worked in New Glasgow because he was from there, uh, he, he moved the family to New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. Yeah, at 18 years of age, I, I moved from New Glasgow, and I, I joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, I was a member of the mil uh, military police. Uh, then it was Air Force police, but Later on, it was generally known as military police uh, for all three services, Army, Navy, and the Air Force. And then when I got out, I worked for 35 years at the uh, University of Toronto. And uh, I started out as a uh, young constable with their campus police service. And I ended up being the uh, manager of campus police uh, by the time of my retirement, some 35 years later. So that's a little bit about me. I now reside in Mississauga, Ontario. This is my first book. It's a memoir, and uh, it's something I've, I've it's something I've wanted to write. Uh, well, it's something I've often thought about. Uh, the content of the book is something I, I think about daily, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. But uh, I was happy to write my memoir. It was very therapeutic uh, for me to do it. And I'm sure other authors that have wrote uh, memoirs, you know, about their lives have found it very uh, uh, therapeutic. So that's a little bit about me and feel free to ask any other questions that I might've overlooked. Well, what I love what you said is like that you you know, you think about these stories that are in the book, you think about your history, you think about these experiences every day. And, you know, when you are introduced to kind of national history in a 
classroom. It's like these big events that seem so divorced from your actual experiences. And what I love about how you said this, and then the the book itself is that you're bringing these experiences, these personal experiences, like you're integrating it with these big national histories to be like this personal experience is also Canadian history, that this is what yes. we should be thinking about. These histories that we think about every day, that we embody, that we carry with us. Yeah, very, very, very much so. And uh, uh, maybe later I can talk a little bit about uh, trauma. And, and my, my book is primarily about generational poverty and about uh, structural racism. And I can tell you, I'm now 74 years of age. I was about 72 when I published my book some two years ago. So I can tell you that racial trauma uh, lives with you. It's not something that, you know, once you turn 21 or once you go off to university, or in my case, I joined the Air Force, it's not something that just goes away. So that was a big uh reason why I wrote the book was to help with some of this trauma and uh, and you're right you know uh, we we tend to think of history as something long long hundreds and hundreds of years ago uh, in some cases it is but the legacy of that history lives on today yeah um, yeah thank you for that um, part of what I wrote in my book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, is that I was seeing that Black students that I was working with, and I'm obviously I'm not Black myself, so um, this was experiences that I was sharing with them through interviews and surveys and observations, was that they were actively rejecting the history they were getting in the classroom. And I argued that this was a way to like honor their ancestors who were not there right, who mm -hmm. as a way to kind of honor the trauma of that continued erasure. And, and so yeah, we could maybe end the conversation a bit talking a little bit more about trauma, because I think, I think we forget not like we like you and I, but I think kind of as a collective, when we're teaching and learning history, we can forget that that trauma lives with us in the classrooms lives with us in teaching and hurt uh, and learning spaces. And that that's a part of history in like working through that trauma, because I think we also yes. think of history as very much outside of us, but it's, it's within us. Right. So how do we, yes. how do we work through that? Yeah. Thank you for bringing such a yeah. complex topic, right, right to the beginning. Yeah. Well, like, like I said, it, uh, trauma, uh, especially in your formative years mm -hmm. and my book talks about the formative years, you know, up to age 18, I didn't go into my adult years because it was my adult years were somewhat different than my uh, years living in Nova Scotia. I mean, I still encountered racism in my adult years, but it was those first 18 years that really molds you and shapes you, and uh, and really you carry that through your through your lifetime. And that you know, and like I said, you know, history. Yes, history might have been a long time ago. Some history, there was a lot of recent history that's mm -hmm. still very hurtful and and, and that we're, we're suffering from. And, you know, you only have to think about the residential school system or, or uh, you know, uh, in some cases, uh, 
black people's interactions with uh, with the police or the criminal justice system. Very recent history, and sometimes we're re-traumatized when we hear those stories. So you know, let's not think of history as uh, ancient. Uh, there, there's very much modern history and recent history that can still be very traumatic and and a lot of it is uh, you can draw a straight line back you know three four hundred years i mean there's things that happened in my life but i can draw a straight line back to uh the enslavement of black people you know in including my heritage my my uh, ancestry uh you know goes back to uh uh uh, North Carolina, where my uh, fifth great grandfather was uh, uh, was enslaved in North Carolina. That's incredible that you can trace your history back that far. Um, mm -hmm. And it's so interesting, like when you can trace it back to the fifth great grandfather, like, you know, the the layering of all the histories that you can bring to that and like what that does versus not knowing and then kind of speculating about all those histories that are yes. layered on and those histories that you speculate are these straight lines because you can also, like I said, you can kind of feel it, but you also know from like larger history. So it's really interesting. You can trace all the way back to the fifth great grandfather. As I mentioned, I'm from Nova Scotia. So really uh, the black population in Canada originated in, in the East Coast you know, because of uh, its location to the United States and shipping at that time was a big mode of travel. You know, you couldn't fly into Halifax at, you know, 1600, 1700. You had to come by boat, right? So uh, uh, a lot of it can be traced to Eastern Canada. Later on, you know, there was migrations to uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan and BC and Ontario. Uh, but a, a lot of the black communities in Nova Scotia that still exist today, historically black communities, uh, were a direct result of uh, either fleeing slavery, being enslaved, or being a refugee uh, from the United States. Well, it's interesting because in um, the last video that we published in December was on the history of molasses, and it was talking about molasses in Newfoundland and the ways that we yes. can think about the connections between yes. like the Eastern Canada um, and the connections to the West Indies, the Caribbean, slavery yes. plantations, and how both people and products moved. Um, and so, yeah, like that's a interesting link we're not immune to it uh canada did play uh a major early canada played a major role remembering that early canada was very much uh british britain and 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 france so and they were two big players in uh, uh in the transatlantic slave trade the middle passage yeah and like yeah. you know again it's just that acknowledgement is not taught when we when when you and I talked before we started recording when we first met you know you had made the excellent point that a lot of other uh, a lot of other historians make about you know we often think about slavery in Canada because of the underground railroad but in fact enslavement 
in Canada through New France and through British North America has a much, much yes. longer history. And yes. um, like, let's go to your book really quickly before we make okay, some of sure. more of those links. Because like okay. this series, we like to talk about the sources and the stories and how it challenges Canadian history. And we just dove right in. And I think that's, I think that's really, really powerful because of the ways that like, your book really does that kind of like bleeding out of all of these different histories and and that you can't just take this one story off the shelf you have to be able to connect it with these large larger histories and larger processes so Yes. This is your book, Jim Crow Lived Here. And you said that you yes. really, you know, you really go up to the age of 18. And I'm just going to put a plug to teachers about why I like that <laughs> before I <laughs> have all these other questions about that is because, you know, you're talking about the 50s and the 60s in New Glasgow, in Nova Scotia. And because you are youth during that time, I think it's so relatable for teachers like in Ontario, our grade 10 history is, you know, the 20th century. And so there's a lot of time that can be spent in the 50s and the 60s. And like, this book can be such a useful tool to be able to be like, look, this is what it was like as a 14 year old or as a 15 year old in Canada during this time, how does it yes. connect with all of these other histories? And that's why I think it's so, it's such a, a really powerful, powerful book. And you, when you were talking about like all these like straight lines that you can make, you're making a straight line just through the title itself, through the title yes. of Jim Crow Lived Here, because we don't really think of Jim Crow in Canada. So maybe do you want to talk about like why you wanted to name the book Jim Crow Also Lived Here and like that straight line that you, or maybe a more complicated line that you wanted to make through just that initial title. Just the title, yes. Well, uh, most authors will tell you that coming up with the title of the book is one of the hardest parts. Sometimes writing the book is easy, but then you but then you're faced with well, what what's going to be what's going to be the title, and you and you want it to be a title that's going that's going to relate to the book, and and grab the attention of uh, off the reader, you know, or the or the person that's looking at it on the bookshelf, you know, at your local bookstore. So uh, when I was doing some research for my book, I very much wanted to research segregation because uh, uh, I talked about in my book how the black community in Nova Scotia, I said about the, I think there's like 54 historically black communities in Nova Scotia. And even today, they're still very much segregated from the wider white community or the, the wider community. I shouldn't say white because uh, we have immigrants from all over the world now and uh, not just Nova Scotia, but all across Canada. But back in, back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, we didn't have those immigration policies. We didn't have those immigrants up there. So I, I wanted to research segregation. And I've always heard a lot about the Jim Crow laws in the South, Southern United States. So I started researching that, and as I researched it, I, I, I realized that, wow, Jim Crow also lived here, meaning Canada, meaning, meaning Nova Scotia and, and, and Canada as a country. 
because a, a lot of the policies, not so much laws in Canada. I mean, in the United States, it was very much codified, the Jim Crow laws in at least two thirds of the American states. And in the United States, it reached well up into the North. You, you hear about the Jim Crow laws of the South. Well, yes, they started in the South, these laws and policies, but they ended up migrating uh, all the ways North, you know, Massachusetts and, uh, you know, uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia had Jim Crow laws, Boston had Jim Crow laws. That's a long way from Southern United States. And, and not so much the laws, but the, uh, the policies and practices crossed the border into Canada, very much so. So that's one reason why I come up with that, uh, uh, the title. And uh, I know I did a presentation before and people said, okay, well, you told us what the title was and why you picked the title, but who was Jim Crow? right? <laughs> and I often forget to mention that it, it, in some of my talks, but uh, Jim Crow was uh, a white man he was in, in, in the South, in the Southern United States. His name was Thomas Darkmouth Rice, R-I-C-E. And he used to go around doing minstrel shows, which were very, very popular in the 1830s. And around 1828, he started doing a minstrel show where he would, uh, in blackface, where he would paint his face black and he would do characters of uh, black people. And, and one of his most popular one was based on a song called Jump Jim Crow. So he would, he would uh, be in blackface and he would very, stereotypically uh, act out scenes as a black person. Uh, and it became very popular and he became very wealthy uh, by, by doing this. So after, uh, after Emancipation Proclamation or after the slaves were freed and, that, and people in the United States wanted to bring in laws and policies that would still keep the free, now the free people, free black people, still keep them away from the white community. So that's where the Jim Crow laws and policies were drafted and enacted. Uh, sometimes they're called the black codes. Sometimes they're called Jim Crow laws. <clears throat> but like I said, it reached far into the North. So let's not think of Jim Crow as a Southern, uh, you know, phenomena. Uh, let's not think of racism as something, uh, <coughs> excuse me, something that's solely for the United States. And so I, mean, I think in, in the opening pages of my book, I talk about I'm writing the book to dispel the myth that racism, slavery, segregation was solely a Southern United States issue. It reached far into the northern United States and across the border into Canada. Just like today, a lot of the, uh, uh, let's say, a lot of the hype, a lot of the feelings about uh, race and immigration has flowed across our border also.
Right. And like, you know, the thing about borders is that they're all just made by humans, right? Like they are literally imaginary lines that especially with the internet, like, you know, that we shouldn't be thinking so hard and fast about these, about, about what a border is and where the ideas come from. Um, I just want to say two quick things about Jim Crow. The first is just a plug for um, a colleague's work. So Cheryl Thomas uh, is working on a new book about blackface and uh, minstrel shows in Canada. So mm-hmm. um, take a look when that comes out. If uh, we will put some information yes. down below for people to be able to click on that when that comes out. Um, and the other thing, I just wanted to highlight what you had said about like we think of or we could think of particular laws that brought in segregation but also it's like practices and i yes. think that is a really really powerful way to really understand a lot of these uh, a lot of these types of things that you're talking about because it's the practices that have also created or not have also that have created structural barriers along with the laws i'll just jump in really quickly because mm-hmm. i wanted to highlight i in 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 my book i had just brought out some language related to caribbean west indies immigration into canada we're like literally in the in like the house the house of commons and you you, you may already know this, you probably already know this, they would say like, black people from the Caribbean do not can, cannot handle our weather, and they are yes. too lazy to work in our climate. And it's like, like that was said in government institutions, like, how can we oh, yes. ignore this as a key, key element of our history? Yes, exactly. Yes, the, the, there is government documents. I mean, you can go into the archives and, and you can find these government documents where, where those very words uh, exist, you know, that were unsuitable for immigration to this country. You know, I mean, that's additional black people, but black people that weren't already here were unsuitable for right, immigration right. because <laughs> of the weather, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, a good example of practices, uh, you often hear if you, if you read about the Jim, Jim Crow laws or segregation in the United States, you hear about sundown towns where you, a black person could not be in a certain town after sundown. And I talked about that in my book uh, as, as an example of practices. The, uh, the town I lived in, uh, Glasgow, uh, black people were allowed because it was a cheap source of labor uh, in the steel mills and coal mines and garbage collection and, and, and things of that nature. So, and, and domestic help, cooks and, and housekeepers. So a cheap source of labor. But in the four surrounding towns of Glasgow, uh, the other four towns, black people were not allowed in those towns. They weren't allowed to rent, they weren't allowed to buy houses, nor did you dare be in those towns after sundown. So, I mean, we we had sundown towns here in Canada where a black person could not be on the street or be seen in certain towns after sundown. And that's just not the East Coast. That happened, uh, that happened in Ontario, that happened in Western Canada and places like that also. I met a woman who is also from Ontario and she was telling me how her town was a sundown town, which I didn't 
I wasn't even really aware of, despite me knowing so much of this history. And she was saying she was uh, also a white woman. And she was saying that her, she had a family member who was part of the police and like his job was to enforce that. And he, she's like, we're, you know, we're yes. trying to figure out like how to reconcile this history. Cause we were proud of like someone that had this station in the police. And then when we realized this history, it's like, Oh, well, how do we, how do we reconcile that? And it's like how yes. it's interesting that as a woman in her 60s, I think she was like, she knew certain aspects of her own family history, but didn't even put them together with the history of her area and her town. And, you know, she is a grandmother of, of, you know, young people in school. So it's like those lines, like you said, how do we connect those lines for people who who haven't yeah. thought of these things as part of their own histories. Well, like, you know, we're talking about drawing lines and uh, uh, like North American police forces, you can draw a direct line back to uh, the slave patrols uh, after, uh, after the slaves were given their freedoms, uh, police forces were set up in, in towns and cities to basically uh, make sure that these now free black people uh, behaved and uh, uh, abided by any sort of laws or definitely to make it very difficult for black people to even be on the streets or to do anything, right? And, uh, and, and then if you take our Canadian experience, uh, you know, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, you, you can draw a direct line back to the indigenous people and how, you know, the Northwest Monolith Police, as they were known at that time, it was, it was formed to uh, basically uh, control the indigenous population, i.e. keep them on the reservations or keep them from revolting because their land was being taken. And as we know now, not only their land was being taken, but their children were being taken also. So, you can make those, very easy to make those connections, you know, if you do the research and think about it, uh, you know, do some critical thinking, you can easily to make those connections between history and what's happening today. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I like... I like that as an element of your book, especially if you're also thinking of it like as a 15, 16, uh, you know, 17 year old person now to like think about experiences that are um, similar and experiences that are different. Um, and I wonder if you could tell one of the stories that you talk about in your book. I don't know if you have a particular one that you want to bring out, like, <laughs> like a fun story or a story that brings in a little bit more you know kind of weight to it but there are so many great so many great stories here right. that talk about the different ways that um your experience was structured by structural racism and poverty but also this really like like family centered community centered experience too uh yes i, I actually uh, uh bookmarked a place in my book and right which I'll refer to, and it was in chapter seven of my book. And I tell you that last hired, first fired. Uh, last hired, first fired. And uh, the quote at the start of the chap chapter was, anyone who has ever struggled with poverty knows how extremely expensive it is to be poor. 
and that's a quote from James Baldwin. My father was an enormously proud man who always wore a necktie, even when dressed in his hearty construction clothes. Lunch pail tucked firmly under his arm, he would walk to and from his various job sites. During his lifetime, he walked and marched thousands of miles. He never drove or owned a car. In his teens and 20s, he had the reputation of always traveling by bicycle. His cycling skills resulted in him getting a speeding ticket while cycling through downtown New Glasgow. My father would rise each workday morning by 530 he would, he would be out of the house an hour later. Many evenings I would meet him as he walked up our gravel road after finishing a day working or looking for work. He would hand me his lunch pail to carry and I would hope that an uneaten sandwich or a treat was still inside the metal container. My father's mother had about 15 children and they were raised in a house on Granville Street near my uncle's home and boxing gym. At least four of the children died between the ages of four months and 34 years of age. Some of the deaths were attributed to poverty and living in substandard housing at the time. One of his brothers died at eight years of age due to an accidental shooting. My father never discussed these tragedies with me, nor did his family refer to these deaths in my presence. When World War II broke out in Europe in 1939, my father and other black Nova Scotians petitioned the provincial and federal governments to per permit black men to enlist as fighting soldiers. This request had always been rejected during the first world war when black servicemen were only permitted to work in military construction and menial labor. The prevailing belief during that period was that white soldiers would not fight alongside black soldiers. They also believed that black soldiers were not brave enough to fight and smart enough to make good military decisions. My father and many black Nova Scotians signed up to serve World War II. <coughs> By 1942, so it took almost three years, they were actively fighting alongside white soldiers in non-segregated units. My father was a gunner <coughs> in the 2nd Canadian Heavy Anti-Aircraft Regiment. During the war, he was awarded six military medals and served in Italy, Germany, France, and the Netherlands. Like a lot of the white soldiers returning to Canada from the war, black soldiers returned to the same racial discrimination, separation, poor employment, and hate that was very present during prior to sailing overseas. Now that the war effort was winding down, good paying employment was even harder to find. Black men were placed at the bottom of the list and offered employment only after white workers were selected first. This lack of good employment combined with substandard housing, housing conditions meant that the cycle of generational poverty and racial injustice kept turning and turning. So, that was a part I put in the book. Uh, uh, what I didn't put in, in the book was, uh, I'd mentioned that my father served in the Netherlands. He actually was part of, part of the regiments that liberated uh, the Netherlands. Uh, in particular, he was up in the Holland 
region of the Netherlands. And he was very proud of that. And he had pictures of some of the Dutch families that welcomed them after they liberated, obviously. And he actually communicated with some of these people even after the war in that. And, but the irony of it was, even though they were welcomed with open arms uh, after liberating these people from Nazism, fascism, he returned to Nova Scotia and he couldn't go into a barbershop and get his hair cut. He couldn't go into a restaurant and have a sandwich or a cup of coffee. He couldn't rent or buy a house in a white section of town. Yeah. So uh, that always weighed heavy on me. And, yeah. And, and it kept me, it kept me and my family in poverty. I mean, we were literally kept in poverty. You know, we had to beg for water for drinking water. We had no well, no source of water. Thank you for sharing that story and that reading. Um... And it reminds me, too, of another veteran we talked about um, who was Inuit and, you know, the same experiences. And, you know, what yes. do we what do we like when we want to honor veterans, right? Like on Remembrance Day, for example, are we remembering too the fact that they that they didn't come back to the type of celebration and honor and reverence? of being able to serve your country. So thank you for bringing your father's story into mm -hmm. this book as well. The last question we ask in this series is like, how does this source and this story um, challenge Canadian history? And I think that that's all we've really talked about today. And that's yeah. been really, really uh. wonderful. Um, so I don't know if you wanna like end on anything, if you wanna end to talk a little bit more about trauma and intergenerational trauma through history, or you want to talk about something maybe a little bit more uplifting, but is there a way that you want to end this that really talks about the ways that we need to retell and rethink and, and bring Canadian history to our own kind of reckonings of self, whether we are white, whether we are um, a person of color, whether we are marginalized in society, whether or not we have privileges. Uh, how would you like to end this conversation? Because I feel like we could do this for yeah. hours and I'm just conscious of your own time <laughs> yes. because I'm like, I could do well, this let's... for hours. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's one quote that sticks with me a lot and it's by a, a Dr. Afu Cooper, uh, and she wrote the book, The Hanging of Angelique. It was about enslavement uh, in French Canada. Uh, but in preparation for her book, uh, and in her book, she writes a lot about um, enslavement of Black people in Europe 200 years before uh, the transatlantic slave trade started. Uh, black people were enslaved in Europe, uh, mainly Portugal and Spain, and places like that. Uh, but there's there's a quote that she has that she often refers to, and it is, and I quote, Canada's enslavement of Black people is Canada's best kept secret, kept locked in the national closet. And I think that really speaks volumes. Yeah. It's like the Canadian narrative has to change. 
The Canadian narrative has always been that we're a land of freedom. We're a land that open our hearts, you know, and our homes and our businesses to, uh, to black people, to indigenous people, which is not the case. And that we were a safe refuge in that. And that's not the case. I mean, history shows that some black people went back to Africa. Once they were freed, uh, they went back to Africa, Sierra Leone, because uh, the conditions in Canada was so harsh, they went back. Some, some black people went back to the United States, you know, because the conditions here were so harsh. Um, so, I mean, that's something that we're not taught. We're taught a lot about the Underground Railroad. I mean, that's the, uh, if you take a black history class, or at least in my, in my days going to school, and I'm sure it's still today, because I hear people refer to it today, younger people, people much younger than me, they know all about the Underground Railroad. They all know, and especially if you're from Ontario, because uh, a lot of places in Ontario were, were destinations on the Underground Railroad. They know a lot about that, but the reality is, uh, at its height, the Underground Railroad was only from like 1830 to 1860, about 30 years. And, and about 30,000 people came up through the Underground Railroad. The majority of Black people in Canada uh, came as either enslaved people <coughs> or free people uh, or people that were deported from Jamaica because they refused to uh, uh, yield to British rule, the Jamaican Maroons. And, and even Stephen, most of them went back to Africa. So things were so harsh in Canada in the 1700s and going into the end into the 1800s that people either went back to the United States uh, or, or went back to Africa. That's how difficult it was for a black person in Canada. Yeah, and I, I think that that quote from Afua Cooper is is a really great way to end this conversation. Mm -hmm. Although I do just want to point out that you begin every chapter with quotes, sometimes one, yes. sometimes two, and they're all really great. Like every time I'm like, yeah, that's a good one. Um, uh, I just want to plug some other videos that we've done related to this topic, because sure. as much as it's, it's Canada's best kept secret, the histories that have been done have been so fantastic and that people just need to access them more because they're there. So we've done videos with like the Buxton Museum, which was a stop on the Underground Railroad, but also had a lot of free black community. We have talked to, um, We've talked to Funke al Dejebe. We've talked to uh, Dr. Natasha Henry about um, mm -hmm. uh, about like ads for people that self-liberated enslaved people who ran away yes. and like the ways that we can read greater agency into these histories. I haven't talked to Dr. Cooper, but I did talk to Dr. Walter Greeson, who is interested in turning the hanging of Angelique into a... Um, into a graphic novel. Um, and so we had a really great conversation about that book. We talked to, with Dr. Michelle Johnson also about these ads for enslavement. Like there are so many ways that we can access these histories now. 
and yes. to think about the the records we don't have and that it is Candace's best kept secret but we can't keep keeping it a secret so to be yeah. able to like get this book bring it into classrooms and also watch the other videos have the other sources um to be able to bring those really fulsome histories out so i think that's a really a way to turn something into like a really positive way to end that there are so many ways that we can broaden and access these mm -hmm. histories so that we can think of a more complex and connected Canadian history. Yes, yeah. I mean, as you you, you name some books, and I mean, and there are lots of books out there. There's a lot of people <laughs> doing some great, great research, but the Canadian narrative has to change so that people yeah. want to read it, you know, or or want to believe it. That, that's another issue. There's, I mean, I've had people that wanted to start fights with me because I told them that there were enslaved black people in Canada at one time and that there was segregation in Canada. And, you know, they literally wanted to, wanted to start a, a physical fight. And how dare you say that about Canada, you know? And we have to get over that type of mentality that, you know, Canada is this utopia, if you will, yeah. you know, freedom and, uh, and fairness, because that's not the case. We're being forced now to face uh, the history of the Indigenous people in Canada. We're being forced, and I, I stress the word forced, uh, we're being forced to face that now. But I think it's time that we shouldn't have to be forced to look at our own history, you know, Let's 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 forget about some of the American history and let's let's forget about some of the European history and really start teaching Canadian history. Yeah. And a lot of ways, people don't want to touch that subject. You know, uh, they get very angry, very defensive when you say anything about Canada. Uh, you know, in, in regards to racism and in, or enslavement, things like that. Yes, Canada has a lot of great qualities. I mean, it's not all bad in Canada. I'm not suggesting that, but we do have a history of, uh, uh, you know, discrimination and segregation and all the other isms out there. We and have that, that history. and that bringing that history more into our parlance and our understanding of Canada, we better honor ourselves here now in our complexities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. Thank you so much, Mr. Paris. <laughs> this has thank been really you. fantastic. I'm so glad you're able to connect. I'm so glad we were able to have this conversation. Yes, for February for Black History Month, but to me, it's just a way, February is just a way that we can like gather all these great resources to make sure that we are teaching this throughout the entire year. And so uh, thank you so much. Yes. Let's well, stay in thank touch. Thank you very much. Yes, please do. And uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you. All right, well, have a great thank day. You. Okay, bye now. Bye. bye. This series is a collaboration between Historic Spaces, an educational consultancy, and Glennon College, York University. This series has been made possible by the Government of Canada.